Good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year to you. It's good to see you today. We are studying uh, perhaps the most wonderful piece of literature ever written anywhere through all the ages, Paul's letter to the Romans. And we have made our way uh, from September through December through the first seven chapters. Let me remind you of what we studied in the first seven chapters while you're turning to chapter 8, where we're going to study the first 11 verses in chapter 8. Paul explains the gospel to the Romans. He's never been to Rome, but he's getting ready to go to Rome because he's going to go from Rome on to Spain on a missionary journey. He wants the support of the Roman Christians. The Roman Christians, he knows, consist of both Jews and Gentiles. And so he is clear to show how the gospel applies both to Jews and to Greeks and to show how they are to live together in harmony. So the purpose of his letter is missional. It's relational or sociological. It's also highly doctrinal, highly theological. In the beginning of the presentation that he makes, he shows from chapters 1 through the middle part of chapter 3 that both Jew and Gentile have fallen short of the requirements for entering God's presence. So whether you're a religious Jew or a religious pagan or a non-religious pagan, which includes everybody now, you have fallen short either of the law of God as you knew it as a Jew or you've fallen short of your own conscience, which God gave you by virtue of creation, even if you never heard of the Old Testament. So by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 20, everybody's condemned. Everybody is condemned, but Paul explains their condemnation. Then when he gets to 3.20, he begins his story of redemption. But now, those wonderful words, but now. There, there was no way for us to be reconciled to God on our own. But now God has provided a way revealed from heaven, a righteousness that is revealed from heaven, a righteousness from God. And it's the righteousness that comes through faith. And Paul explains that there is a way to be reconciled to God, to have eternal life, but it's not through your religious performance, through having the right doctrine, or through moral conduct. It is through trusting in what God in his son Jesus Christ has done for us. And he explains in chapter 3, primarily forensically how this works. That is in the courtroom of law. According to the law of God, we've fallen short, and the God the judge must judge those who have broken the law, as any good judge does. And God is a perfect judge. Paul explains that, but he says, when we trust in Jesus Christ, God, what he's done, he's provided in his son a substitute for us, so that the wrath of God falls not upon us, but upon him in our place. And by trusting in him, our sin is condemned in him, and we're set free from condemnation. It sounds like Disneyland, I know. It sounds impossible, I realize that, but that's what the gospel teaches, and we're called to believe it. I do with all my heart. There's no other way, he makes clear. In the midst of that, Paul also shows that even though the law condemns us, and now we're set free from the condemnation of the law, 
that doesn't mean that we're free from keeping the law. On the other hand, he says, we uphold the law at the end of chapter 3. And then he goes on in chapter 4 to give you a wonderful illustration, primarily from the life of Abraham. And it shows how this is not something new in the New Testament. It's not some newfangled idea. It was in the Old Testament, and you missed it, he says to the Jews. This is the way Abraham was justified. It was through faith. You get to chapter 5, and Paul makes this wonderful statement. You can turn back and look at it in chapter 5, verse 1, which has a lot to do with where we are now in chapter 8. He says, Therefore, <coughs> since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have obtained access into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So beginning in chapter 5, he says, having been justified, we now have a blessed hope, a certainty of glory at the end. Wow, you mean it's as good as done? Yes, and he'll show us in chapter 8 later on how it's as good as done. If you've been justified, you are just as well as already glorified in the mind of God. It's just a matter of working it out in chronology. Now, because of that then, Paul anticipates some logical objections that any philosopher would have. For example, shall we then just sin it up real big since we, are, we know we're going to be forgiven and we know we're going to heaven? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And in chapter 6, Paul says, by no means. And the reason you ask that question is because you ask it from an unbelieving perspective, an unregenerate perspective. And Paul says what makes that question silly from a regenerate perspective is this, that when you have been justified by faith, you have at the same time been given a new nature. You've come into union with Christ. And by virtue of your union with Christ, not just that he stood in your place forensically, he set you free from the condemnation of the law, but now you are organically connected to him, you're in union with him, you share his DNA. Because of that now, you have a new nature. It's not your nature, dominant nature, to want to just keep on sinning. If it is, then you've probably not been justified by faith. Because if you've been justified by faith, you've also been born again, and you've been given this new nature. And he also goes, goes on to show in chapter 6, <clears throat> you not only have a new nature, you have a new master. And you submit to him. You've been transferred from one powerful kingdom of the law and of condemnation. It's a powerful kingdom, a kingdom of sin and death, into a kingdom of grace, a grace that rules and reigns, that has great power over you. So the question, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound, is a silly question because we now have a new nature which is desiring to be close to God and we now have willingly place ourselves under a new master who has infinite power, the power of grace. Now Paul goes on, as we saw before Christmas, into Romans 7. And he says, this can be frustrating because now you know you've got a new nature. You want to obey the law. You've got a new master. You want to submit to him. And you are tempted to use the old way of sanctification, the way that you used to use. And here's the way that way works. That you now, with your new nature, 
are looking to the law of God and saying, I want to do that. Now, that's a nice change. Because before you got converted, you looked at the law and said, I don't want to do that. So it's good. Now you look at it and you say, I want to do it. Great. That's part of you. That's your new nature. And Paul says your problem, and we saw this in Romans 7, is that you also have indwelling sin. That's called the flesh. It's still in there. And there's a battle going on. And the harder you try to follow the law, the worse it gets. The very thing you want to do, you don't do. And the very thing you don't want to do, you do. And Paul ends up at the end of Romans 7 saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm, I'm, I feel like a lost man. I know I'm converted. I know I have a new master, but I'm not able to do it. And Paul says, here's the key. There is a new way. What you're doing is following the old way of the law, which is simply looking at it and by your strength trying to keep it. That's the old way of the law. It leads to death. And he says in Romans 7, look, don't blame the law. Nothing wrong with God's law. It's perfect, holy, and good. It's righteous. It reveals God's character, and it shows us what our character is supposed to be. So we uphold the law. It's perfect. I love the law, says David. So we don't condemn the law, but the law condemns us. <coughs> Not because, <coughs> I'm sorry, <coughs> when you have... Ten grandchildren, six and under, you get stuff. <laughs> and man, did I ever get it. Um, so, and it was worth every bit of it too. Um, so, the, you, we're condemned by the law, not because something is wrong with the law, something is wrong with us. Here's what your flesh does. Your flesh takes something absolutely beautiful and pristine and glorious in its content and perverts it and ends up getting yourself condemned by it. That's your flesh. Takes the good law and gets you condemned. And Paul says, if I go that route, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Then you remember the end of Romans 7. He says, but thanks be to God. Look at Romans uh, 7, 25. He says, <coughs> thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So there's the problem. But Jesus Christ is going to deliver this, deliver us from this, this sort of final problem in sanctification that Paul is handling. And Romans 8 gives us the answer. You will notice if you read Stott, you will, you'll notice that he, he, he reminded us that in chapter 7, you have the word law or its synonyms used 31 times. And the Holy Spirit is only mentioned in verse 6. So one mention of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, <coughs> 19 mention, 31 mentions of the law or its synonyms. But in chapter 8, 1 through 27, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times, most of those in the verses that we're studying. So you can see Paul is making a massive shift now in his description of how we live the Christian life when we seek to do it in the old way of the law, even as converted people. When we seek to do it in the old way of the law, we're going to end up, end up frustrated. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? <clears throat> when we do it by the way of the Spirit, we'll see that there is real liberation and real empowerment. Now, let's be really clear on this. That doesn't mean that any of us 
can live a sinless life in this life. None of us will be perfect. Uh, we sin every day. I've already sinned this morning. I, I, I deserve damnation from my thoughts of this morning. That's, that's how bad we are. We can't wake up on any morning, even <coughs> like I did at three, <coughs> and, and get through to, to 6.30 in the morning without being condemned sinners on our own. So we're not perfect. But what Paul is showing is that in a way that God demands of us, we can actually fulfill the law in a Christian way by walking by the Spirit. Not perfectly, but sincerely. Now let's see how he describes this to us. We'll read verses 1 through 11 for this, for this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, <clears throat> let's look at this new way of the spirit. What are we being taught by the Apostle Paul about this new way? First of all, in verses 1 through 4, we'll notice that the law of the spirit has set us free. The law of the spirit has set us free. First of all, from condemnation. A lot of us have memorized this verse as one of our very special ones. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're set free from that. Now, what we have to realize is that the old way of the law inevitably leads us to self-condemnation, even as Christians. If you are trying to live the Christian life, by using your own Christian moral strength in applying the law to your life, if you have a properly sensitive conscience, you're going to be condemning yourself all the time. You're just a massive failure. Paul says the way of the Spirit sets us free from condemnation. Now, you'll notice in the first three verses here that uh, this condemnation is primarily speaking about the condemnation from 
our sins that God is judging. Uh, I think there's a secondary sense in which it's the condemnation of self-condemnation reflecting upon Romans 7 and the frustration of trying to keep the law by our own power. But primarily he's talking here about God's judgment of us and you see that because of the description in verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> he says the law of the spirit of life and by law here he just means principle. He's not talking about the Old Testament law. He just means a principle or, or the law of, of, of this idea. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the principle of sin and death. And he shows how that's happened. He just reminds us of what he's told us earlier. In verse 3, he says, God has done it. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't justify you. The law can't sanctify you. God has done what the law cannot do. And here's what he's done. He sent his son. That's what the coming of Jesus was all about. God was going to do in Christ, he has done in Christ, what you nor the law can do on your own, both in justification and in sanctification. And how did he do that? Well, when he sent his son, he came in the likeness of, and it says here, sinful flesh. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Because <clears throat> we know that Jesus was not a sinner. He identified with us in every way. He's experienced everything that we've experienced as the writer of Hebrews, yet without sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ was sinless, but he came in the likeness. In other words, he appeared to be just a fellow sinful human just like ourselves. And he certainly took on the weakness of human flesh. So God sent him in flesh <coughs> for sin. And that phrase there means to expiate sin or as an offering, a sin offering. So he came to take away our sin. Uh, he, was con he condemned sin in the flesh. So by sending his son, God exercised his right and duty as a judge in exhausting his wrath against sin in his own son. So he transferred our sin to him and then exercised all the duties of justice against sin in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's no more condemnation to go around. It's being completely exhausted because all the sins of all God's people were placed on Jesus Christ. Now, notice that the apostle is not only speaking of condemnation, but he's speaking about the freedom from corruption. Verse 4, that the law, the righteous requirement of the law, might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus came and took on our sin. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Now, if you look in your ESV footnotes, <coughs> you'll see that the editors there say, I think rightly, this could mean either of two things. Number one, what Paul could be saying is that uh, this is our justification, that Jesus Christ, by dying in our place, fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He not only lived a perfect life, but he paid for our sins and therefore we're justified. Or secondly, and Stott prefers this interpretation, this means that what Jesus did for us in the flesh now allows us to live a spirit-filled life that is not perfect, but it is sincere. In other words, it is genuinely tracking with the law of God. So if you have the law of God up here, 
uh, we're genuinely seeking it. We do it like this. But the trajectory of our lives is this way. And that would be the righteous requirement of the law. I tend to agree with Stott. And the reason is that Paul is in a whole context of talking about sanctification here and showing us how we live the Christian life with respect to the law. So it seems to me he's saying that in order to walk with God and keep his law in a Christian sense, you first of all must know that you are delivered from the condemnation that falls on you rightly for not perfectly keeping the law and that you're delivered from that. And therefore, you're not worried, anxious, neurotic. You know, there's the, the uh, Abraham, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, on his hierarchy of needs, uh, Maslow, thank you, uh, on his hierarchy of needs, you know, what's the, what's the basic need is security. And you can see it in our country. As soon as bombs go off, it doesn't matter how the economy is. It doesn't matter, you know, how well your family's doing, what your business is. We're all nervous. You take away security, we all go berserk. And you can see it in an individual human life. The number one fear of a 15-year-old is losing one of his parents. I mean, you may say it's irrational, but it's the number one fear. Why? Either from death or divorce or some other thing. Just the fear of being abandoned or not being secure. So what do we do then? We want to strengthen our children or we want to be strengthened ourselves we're strengthened in our assurance of God's security for us. And this is the context of this whole argument, going back to Romans 5.1, that having been justified, we now have peace with God and we have hope in the glory of God. In other words, we know where we're going. Because we've been justified, we know where we're going. That settles our nerves. That enables us now to stop thinking about our poor little selves and let's get on to glorifying God. So once you're relieved of your condemnation, now you can begin to look at the law of God and look to God himself and really seek to walk with him because you know you're loved and you're secure. And it seems to me that's the point the apostle is making here, that <coughs> we're delivered from condemnation so that we may increasingly be, be delivered from corruption. So we're not just justified to be floating around as happy little saints waiting to go to heaven. We are happy little saints waiting to go to heaven. But that's not all that we're doing. We're justified in order now to walk seriously with him. That's our calling in life. Now, uh, secondly, we've seen the law of the Spirit has set us free. Uh, look with me at uh, verses 5 through 8, and we'll see secondly, we must set our minds on the Spirit. In other words, there's something here for us to do. There is an effort we make. You're not just carried along in sanctification. Sanctification is by the power of God. It is through faith. You can't be sanctified apart from faith, as we'll see in just a moment. But when you're sanctified, rather, you are trusting in God, but you're also, you're also asserting yourself. In your justification, you don't assert yourself. You just trust in Christ. In your new birth, you don't assert yourself. You just trust in Christ. But in your sanctification, you actually assert yourself. Now look how you do it. You assert yourself by setting your minds on the Spirit. You set your mind. You know, this idea of setting your mind, we find also in Colossians chapter 3, when Paul says, you know, we are living in this world, but we set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we, we, 
we aspire to that. We long for that. We set our minds on it. It becomes our ambition. And you can tell a non-Christian from the way that he has his mindset. You can tell a Christian from the way that he has his mindset. There's a, an entirely different mindset from the Christian and the non-Christian. The Holy Spirit enables us now, gives us the, the desire with our minds and the ability with our minds to set them on the Spirit of God. This is the new way of the Spirit. The old way of the law sets your mind on the law in your own power, your own moral power, your own Christian moral power. The new way of the Spirit looks outside of yourself so that you have your regenerate nature, you have the law of God, but you have this alien power. It's called God. God the Holy Spirit, and you look to Him to come and live His life through your life. You're consciously doing that. You're aware of it. It doesn't just happen by accident, Paul says. No, you set your mind. You're intentionally looking to God. Sometimes in <coughs> conservative Christian circles, we can be very clear about what happened on Calvary's cross and that we all need the atonement that's provided by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's good. And I suppose if you're going to pick the heart of the gospel, that's a pretty good place to, to situate it. But there's another mystery in addition to the mystery of the cross that is essential for the Christian life. And it's the mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I, I dare say that there are some conservative Christians who have, who all their talk is about the forensic aspects of the gospel and not the spiritual aspects of the gospel. And you can't live the Christian life without consciously looking to the Holy Spirit. If you become a Christian, you know that you confessed your sins and you looked to the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be your righteousness. You cease to claim a righteousness of your own. You refuse to stand on your own record. You knew that your record would only condemn you. And you looked to the record of Jesus Christ and you took his record. And furthermore, you took his sacrifice as the propitiation for your sins before God. So we all know that in becoming Christians, we looked outside of ourselves to an alien righteousness. What Paul is saying, in order to live the Christian life, you not only have to have an alien righteousness, you have to have an alien power. And I fear that some of us have forgotten this and are not practicing it as we ought. It's interesting, in the, in the book of Acts, you'll get a couple of examples of this. You remember when Paul would go to a couple of places and say, <coughs> have you received the Holy Spirit? And these were people who were professing Jesus Christ as Lord. And they said, no, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and that, that baffles scholars because they think, how could a person be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean that they weren't regenerate by the power of the Holy Spirit but they never consciously ask the Holy Spirit to come into their lives and lead them and guide them and empower them. Brothers, please, ask Him today. Ask Him every day. Not only for the sense of the forgiveness of your sins, but for the infilling, constant infilling of the Holy Spirit, realizing you can't go to work today and be His man. You can't go home and love your wife. You can't really serve your children and grandchildren. You can't be a good friend without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you're going to live out 
the law of God and live in a way that pleases him. Once again, not perfectly, but sincerely and in general principle. So he says, we must set our minds on the spirit. First of all, verse five, because of our nature. That is, we must live by the spirit because we've been made now as Christians to live by the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. And you can look at Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. You'll see some Old Testament promises to this effect. One day, I'll put my spirit in you. Here's the day, brothers. The, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and from his place in heaven, Peter said on Pentecost Sunday, he has poured out what you see in here. So Jesus, from his enthroned position at the right hand of God, gave us the great blessing of Abraham, the gift that had been promised. It was the gift of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is simply saying in his gospel presentation, you can't just have Christ on the cross alone. You must have Christ on the cross and you must have the Holy Spirit in filling your own life. That's how you walk by the Spirit. It's our very nature to walk that way. <clears throat> a believer has a new mindset. It's very different from the unbeliever. The unbeliever has his mindset. He has the things he thinks about. He has the things that he desires and aspires to. He has his own obsessions. <clears throat> I remember a couple of interesting occasions. They were sad to me. Members of our church here over the past 22 years. I won't call any names. But I remember going out to lunch with one of our men. I'll call him uh, Sam. Sorry, Sam. I'm not picking on any real Sams. but uh, uh, Sam and I were talking about his life, and he told me how he just very much wanted to get married again. I said, well, I hope, I, you know, hope that happens for you. Uh, uh, you. You know, it sounds like that's really important. She said, oh, yeah, that just means everything to me. And I said, well, Sam, you know, uh, Paul says that we're, we're to live content whether we're single or married. He said, well, I'm just not going to be content single. I'm, I'm, I, I want to be married. I want to have a woman. And we, as we talked on and on, I realized this man was, had his mind set on seeking a woman. And before lunch was over, I said to him, Sam, uh, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm your pastor. And I want to tell you, I'm, I'm not sure you've been converted. He said, really? I said, yeah, it's, I'm, it's that serious. You have your mind set on something that has not promised you in the Bible, that won't necessarily help you in your sanctification, and you're ignoring many other areas of your spiritual life because you are dead set on getting a woman. And I, I just, I'm not sure that the regenerate heart can consistently go that way. In other words, maybe today is a bad day for you, but over the period of the next several days or weeks, there's, there's going to have to be repentance there, or you, you really need to ask yourself whether you know the Lord. Uh, on another occasion, uh, I'll, I'll call this man Joe, just because I saw Joe Abrams over here. I'll pick on Joe. <laughs> and I tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't Joe. You, if you know Joe, you know that's for sure. Um, but Joe, once again, was having serious troubles in his marriage, caused by him largely. And uh, when addressed about his problems, all he could think about was the success of his business. He just continued to go back to his business and not deal with, I'm talking about his money-making business, and not deal with his relationship that was 
where there was immoral behavior going on. And once again, I, th I think, you know, once we, you, if you've been dealing at length with someone like that, I think it's some, oftentimes it's our duty to say, you know, my, my deepest concern for you, Joe, is that I'm, I'm not sure that you've really savingly met Christ. Because Christ gets our minds set on him, on God, on what God wants, on pleasing him. That's the mindset of a Christian. And if you find that you don't have that mindset, then let me just say to you, it's possible that you, you have an interest in the Bible and you have an interest in maybe Christian institutions or Christian people, but perhaps you've not been converted. It sounds like a real likelihood because Paul is saying that our very nature here is to set our minds on the things of God. You, you, uh, something dramatic happens at conversion. Now, some of you are converted so early, you don't remember what it was like to think like a non-Christian. I don't have that luxury. I remember very well what it was like to think like a non-Christian. And so I know, I, I've experienced it. I know what I'm talking about. Some of you may have had different experiences. It might have been more gradual. Mine was pretty dramatic when I was 25 years of age. But there's a decided change in our mindset. And Paul says, what you've got to do now in sanctification, consciously set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That means instead of looking to yourself to be kind to your wife tonight, for those of you who are married, before you go home, pray. Say, Holy Spirit, please fill me with your presence. Please help me love my wife. Please speak through me and act through me. Make me your instrument of peace today. So you see, you're consciously asking for his help and you're casting yourself on his mercy, the mercy of his power, just like you cast yourself on the mercy of the cross and the, the mercy of his forgiveness. So it's, it's the same motion that you make with your soul when you first became a Christian. You're always doing that, always submitting yourself, always asking for help. Secondly, Paul says in verse 6, it's because of the eternal consequences. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Let me read to you what R.C. Sproul says in his brief commentary on Romans on, on this point. He says, we do not know where we are going to be a year from now or 10 years from now. What really matters is where we're going to be 100 years from now. If our minds are set on the things of the flesh, then 100 years from now, we will be in perdition. But if our minds are concerned about the things of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the sweetness of God, then 100 years from now, we will be enjoying the brightness of God's glory without interruption. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't think so much about where you're going to be next year. We're always thinking about where we're going to be next year. I'm thinking about where I'm going to be next year. But the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to realize where we're going to be 100 years from now. Where are you going to be? And get your mind set there. And thirdly, verses 7 through 8, we must set our minds on the Spirit because of our relationship to God. He says the sinful mind is hostile to God. Does this not ring true with so much of what we see with people that we love who haven't given their lives to Christ? That there's, a, there's an incipient hostility that sometimes comes out with jokes, sometimes comes out with sarcasm, sometimes comes out very bitterly. 
uh, hostility toward the living God. Why are they hostile? The reason they're hostile, <coughs> you can see it in their hostility toward you. The reason they're hostile is they do not want to submit to a law that they did not make themselves. They do not want to submit to the law of God. And that's the reason you often hear, you know, CNN or other places where you get cultural comments. You know, these evangelical Christians or these Roman Catholics, whatever, they just want to impose their morality on us. That's the big complaint, as though they weren't imposing their morality on us now. But they, we don't want to have morality imposed on us. In other words, we do not want to submit to the law of God. And you, re you represent the presentation of God's law wherever you go if you're a genuine Christian. And I resent that if I'm an unbeliever because I do not want to submit to the law of God. Why? It's my very nature. And Christians must believe that was your nature too until God had mercy upon you. And therefore you should neither be surprised nor should you be offended personally when you see folks who are saying all kinds of things about you and about the Lord, you must realize that, but by the grace of God, so go I. And have mercy and continue to administer the gospel in society. But Paul says here, it's a reflection of our relationship to God. We set our minds on the spirit because we have a reconciled relationship with him. Now, thirdly, let's look at verses 9 through 11. And here we see the... the New way of the Spirit is not only a way of freedom and a way of mentally setting our minds outside of ourselves onto an alien power and asking for His power to work through us, but it's because we are actually in the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit is such because we are actually in the Spirit. Look at verse 9. First of all, He dwells in us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not hostile to God. You are not hostile to his law. You are not indifferent. You have been regenerate. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the hallmark of every believer. We are men of the Spirit. We're consciously related to the Spirit. We're asking for the Spirit's help. We're trusting in the Spirit, just as we trust in the second person of the Trinity for our atonement, Jesus Christ. So we're trusting in him. We are in him. And Jesus, of course, explains this to Nicodemus. <coughs> he says, Nicodemus, uh, flesh is born of the flesh. Spirit is born of the spirit. Unless you are born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And you certainly can't enter it. So Jesus teaches this really clearly that without the spirit, no one is coming into the kingdom of heaven. No one wants it. But now you are in the spirit. Why? Because the spirit is in you. He indwells you. We have become temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now notice, <clears throat> not only does he dwell in us, but he brings us life. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Uh, keep your finger in Romans 8, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a moment. And here Paul beautifully describes this weird experience of both dying and living. And Paul is saying here that your body is dead because of sin. That means your body is on its way to death. You know, with every uh, little episode that I have, like the one I've got now with this bad cold, and I'm sitting there with a sinus headache, and you know, when you get to a certain age, a young guys, let me just say to you, when you get to a certain age and you're feeling really feeling so bad, you'll find yourself saying, Lord, this would be a good time to take me out of here. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, when your children are all grown up and you paid for their education and all that. <coughs> and I kind of felt that way earlier this week. And yet, uh, you know, we also use it as a time to realize this body is falling apart. You know, this is just a warning. This thing is, is going on me. And Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4 where our body is, is wasting away, but our spirit is being renewed every day. Look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart. So even though your body is wasting away, old guys, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, <coughs> our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, look at that. No matter what you're going through, light, momentary. You say, well, I've been suffering for months. I've been suffering for years. Momentary. In view of eternity, momentary. You say, but it's so terrible. I'm so deeply grieved. In view of the glory that is stored up for you, light. Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. Oh, wait just a minute. So you're saying this suffering is doing something for me? Oh, yes, it's preparing you for something. It's achieving something in you. It's purposeful. It's not accidental. You know, it's so sad to hear even preachers and rabbis on occasion say that, you know, God's not responsible for this and God's not responsible for that and God doesn't want you to hurt. God doesn't want you to die. God, let me tell you something. God is in charge of everything. Everything. That's who God is. And the beauty of it is that for his people, everything has a purpose to bless you, even your deepest sorrows and your worst pains and agonies. That's the glory of it. Please don't give me a God who's not in control of this universe. If he's not, then he cannot, he cannot bless me through my suffering. He has no way of doing that. He's hands off. But that's not who God is. He makes it really clear. He controls every atom, every, every electron in the universe. And he's using our sufferings to prepare us for something. And what does he say? He says, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what he's preparing for you. That's the meaning of your sufferings. He's achieving something that is absolutely glorious. And he's doing it through sufferings. And keep reading. As we look, here we go with this mindset again. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what the apostle is saying there is similar to what he's saying in Romans chapter 8. That we have two things going on. We have in the visible world, my body is getting weaker as the days go by. And my health is getting worse and I'm winding down from the moment you're born. 
you're winding down. But when the spirit comes into your life, your spirit is winding up. So at the same time that I'm getting older and weaker, I'm actually getting stronger and more confident in my spirit. That's the way the Christian is to live. So we're going in two different directions, and it's a little odd. But let's come to the next verse, and we'll see how it gets reconciled. He not only brings life, he will resurrect our bodies. So one day our bodies will go in the same direction as our spirits. He's going to solve this problem. He has a reason for doing it the way he's doing it. Right now, in this life, when you come to Christ, your spirit continues to grow, become more energetic, and renews your youth every day like the eagles, even as your body is wasting away. But then he says in verse 11, hey, hang on just a minute. The spirit also cares about your body. We're not disembodied human beings. We're embodied human beings. And the spirit cares about your spirit and the spirit cares about your body. And he says, here's what he's going to do. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is saying, do you understand how the spirit is at work in you? For this moment in your history, from the time that you're converted until the time that you die, you have a battle to fight. You have indwelling sin. You have these mortal bodies and your flesh, your indwelling sin, along with your mortal body, are wreaking havoc for you and you're continually having to set your mind on the spirit to ask for this alien power to come in and assist you in living the Christian life. But the Apostle Paul says, let me tell you something about the work of the Spirit. This is not just chance or accident. He's not just kind of wistfully hoping you make it. No, the Holy Spirit has chosen you just as surely as the Father has chosen you and the Son has chosen you in dying for you. The Spirit has chosen you. And when the Spirit chooses you, he not only regenerates your spirit and lives with you, but one day he will raise that and he'll resurrect your body. He'll actually regenerate your body. So you'll be not only a regenerated soul, you'll be a regenerated body. Now, when we die, <coughs> we know from what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Without our bodies. Our bodies go into the ground. So our bodies go into the ground, our spirits go into his presence. Not a whole lot is not said about that. We don't understand everything about it. But we know that we're happy. We also know that while we're there, we are quite aware there's another day coming that's even more glorious. And from what we read in Revelation, we join along with the saints before us in calling out to the Lord, How long, O Lord? until you come back. Lord Jesus, how long? In other words, we're encouraging him to come back. And the only reason he hasn't yet is because he has some more of his people to gather in. The reason we want him to come back is because it will be for his unadulterated glory. Everything will be at his feet. His exaltation will be seen by the entire universe. All of his people will be fully vindicated. Also at that time, the reason we're longing for the second coming of Jesus is that 
our spirits will be reunited with resurrected bodies. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, that if they call the archangel, the trumpet of the archangel, that the dead in Christ will rise. So our spirits then will be rejoined with regenerated bodies that don't wear out, that do not wind down, that continue to renew their strength like the eagles, just like our souls do, and will be in resurrected bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. It is this spirit of God by which we are being sanctified. This spirit who is so powerful, he takes your dead body even when it's dissolved into dirt itself and reconstitutes a resurrected body that shall never die. Should you trust him? Should you think he's powerful enough to help you through your moral crises? You think he's powerful enough to get you through your difficulties and afflictions? Paul says, this is the Holy Spirit I'm talking about. This is the spirit who's going to keep you to the end. And we'll see in our study of Romans 8, Paul's chief concern here is that we be secure, that we know he's going to get us to the end. He starts with no condemnation. He ends with no separation. This is the work of the Spirit to keep us to the very end. Knowing that, what Paul is saying to us about our sanctification is get with the program. Set your mind on the Spirit and trust in Him. He's the one who's accomplishing all this work. Be sure you're continuing to look to Him constantly for conformity to the law of God whom we love with our hearts. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the new way of the Spirit, for the old way frustrated us and still does when we try it. And we thank you that you have delivered us from both the condemnation and the corruption and the chaos and frustration of the old way. We pray that you'll help us today, O oh Lord, to set our minds on what is true and good and beautiful, and specifically to set our minds on you, to set our minds on Christ, to set our minds on you, Holy Spirit, and consciously to call out for your help in our lives. Lord, please help my brothers here who face a multitude of challenges today, <coughs> some of them even dreading decisions that have to be made or conflicts that have to be confronted. Help them even now to ask you to get them through that, not just to survive, but to abound in glorifying you in those circumstances. Holy Spirit, fill us, we pray, for the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.